was the Boy Scouts of America, Pack 132, and you're listening to KDBS in Davis. Hello, hello. How's it going? You are listening to KDBS Davis 90.3 FM. My name is Nick Donato, and I will be your host uh, for the next hour, taking over from 5 to 6 p.m. Uh, to do uh, our weekly news program, the Cin- Civic Animal News Hour. Uh, it's great to be back. Um, doing much more of a live show this week. Um, for those of you who tuned in last week, we had an interview with the excellent UC Davis Basement Gallery. Uh, but today we're going to be shifting and talking more about uh, some issues that still pertain to KDBS, but not so much where it's located. Uh, instead, we're going to be talking about, as I'm sure many of you are aware, the recent coverage in the news concerning uh the, I, I guess you could call it the feud between uh, Joe Rogan and Neil Young. Um, for those of you who maybe are not aware of the story, uh, essentially, uh, Neil Young threatened Spotify saying that he wanted to have his catalog pulled if the streaming platform did not take more serious action regarding um, claims of Joe Rogan using uh, his podcast to spread misinformation about COVID-19, amongst other things. Uh, So yeah, that will be a feature point for today's show, Uh, but also sort of talking about the larger uh, realm of music streaming and what it means for the music industry, what it means for musicians and people who are just really into music, Uh, sort of the whole package. So yeah, I mean, KDVS... Uh, obviously, we're pred- predominantly a music station. Um, music means a lot to the people down here. And whether, you know, whether it is, you know, the case that you're purchasing vinyl or you're uh, using a, a streaming service, the way that you consume music can have as much impact uh, on the industry oftentimes as the kind of music that you're supporting. Um So yeah, with that being said, uh, it's good to be here. I will be here from 5 to 6 p.m. Before I get into this first news story, though, um, if you are at all interested in uh, contacting the KDVS News Department, whether that be uh, because you have just a question or a news story that you would like to share with us, um, today, again, I'm going to be talking a lot about Uh, sort of the impacts of Spotify and other streaming services on the music industry. So if you're uh, a music artist that has had any experience with these kinds of services and you would like to share uh, your history uh, with that, then you can go ahead and contact us at news at kdvs.org. Once again, that's news at kdvs.org. Or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at kdvs90.3 news. Um, and yeah, we would love to hear what you have to say. We're also looking, uh, as usual, for uh, any volunteers. So if you are interested in getting involved with the news department, whether you be, uh, you are a UC Davis student or a community member or just really anyone, yeah, you can feel free to hit those same lines, uh, our Facebook, Instagram, email. We'd love to hear from you. 
Sweet. So with that being said, uh, I will jump into the first story for today. Um, this is one of the more recent additions uh, to the uh, ongoing uh, feud that Neil Young is having with Spotify. Uh, this comes from Pitchfork, dated January 28th, 2022. So let's see, when was that? Today is the 31st. So that this is, I believe, yeah, Friday. Uh, and it is written by Allison Hussey. Uh, title is Joni Mitchell says she's removing her music from Spotify in solidarity with Neil Young. Uh, start article starts out. Joni Mitchell has said she's removing her work from Spotify in solidarity with Neil Young's decision to do the same this week. Pitchfork has contacted uh, Spotify for comment. The singer songwriter posted a statement to her website Friday night, January 28th, which reads in full. I've decided to remove all my music from Spotify irresponsible people are spreading lies that are costing people their lives i stand in solidarity with neil young and the global scientific and medical communities on this issue uh young had requested the removal of his work earlier in the week citing spotify's role in spreading fake information about vaccines that was a quote from neil young uh, by hosting joe rogan's podcast the platform followed through on young's request on wednesday following uh joni mitchell's announcement Crazy Horse member and East Street Band guitarist Nils Lofgren announced that he would be joining Mitchell and Young and removing his music from Spotify in a statement on the Neil Young Archives website. Uh, and that's definitely a website that we'll be talking more about later on in the discussion. For those of you who aren't aware, the Neil Young Archives site is a very interesting uh, streaming model, kind of, I would say, unconventional definitely with most people's experience with streaming as it is essentially a streaming service for just neil young music um which sounds at first like it might not do too well but has actually been rather successful and in some metrics has earned neil young more money than even his music being on spotify uh has has earned them um so yeah uh that that has been a recent addition to the story now, not only has Neil Young stepped down uh, from having his music on Spotify, but Joni Mitchell as well. Uh, Nils Lofgren, another big name. So, uh, yeah, I mean, this story is still early in development, but I could I could definitely see uh, more musicians coming forward, especially musicians uh, such as these people with uh, a legacy career in music and media who don't necessarily need Spotify per se uh to uh to continue to be uh successful and to uh make money uh so moving on obviously like i said before the story has been getting a lot of buzz i think just because it considers a lot of different kinds of celebrities obviously joe rogan is hugely popular hugely influential with a lot of people um neil young also the same uh and spotify is one of the most popular if not the most popular uh way that people listen to music now uh are the only comparisons that i can think of in terms of just the sheer volume of of delivery of a certain kind of media would be youtube maybe apple music but spotify has certainly had a stranglehold on the market so anyways without further ado this next story is uh, Joe Rogan responds to Neil Young and Spotify. This actually uh, is a new story from today uh, from MSN.com. 
Uh, so the article starts, Joe Rogan has responded to criticism of his podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience, after Neil Young said he wanted to leave Spotify because of Rogan's contributions to spreading, quote, false information about vaccines, unquote, on the platform. Rogan took to Instagram to talk about how his, quote, podcast has been accused of spreading dangerous information, unquote, mentioning two episodes in particular that included controversial guests. He said he books the guests himself, and one thing he could change is having ex experts with differing opinions on directly after people with, quote, controversial, unquote, opinions. I'm going to do my best in the future to balance things out, he said. After Young and fellow musician Joni Mitchell removed their music in protest, calling on Spotify to prevent the spread of misinformation on their platform, the company said it will add an advisory to podcasts that discuss COVID-19. In his video, Rogan said he has no hard feelings towards Young or Mitchell and said he is happy to have a disclaimer on his podcast, which, screen, which streams exclusively on Spotify. Uh, I'm not trying to promote misinformation. I'm not trying to be controversial, he said. I've never tried to do anything with this podcast other than to just talk to people. Uh, he defended his choice of having two controversial doctors on the show, one of which was Dr. Robert Malone, an infectious disease specialist who has become a hero in the anti-vaccine community and has been banned from Twitter from, for spreading COVID-19 misinformation. Ro Rogan said he wanted to hear the two experts' opinions and claimed that Quote, many of the things we considered misinformation just a short while ago are now considered as fact, unquote. A group of health experts wrote a letter to Spotify earlier this month, calling on the platform to remove Rogan after his highly controversial episode with Malone. The group said Rogan and Malone made claims on the show that have been discredited. The new Spotify advisory for podcasts will direct listeners to its COVID-19 hub, a resource that provides easy access to data-driven facts, up-to-date information as shared by scientists, physicians, academics, and public health authorities around the world, as well as links to trusted sources, CEO Daniel Ek wrote in a statement. The advisory is set to be implemented globally in the coming days. After Young's statement against the platform last week, Spotify's Instagram became flooded with comments about the debate over the company's responsibility to remove misinformation published on its platform by podcasters like Rogan. Uh, so yeah, um, once again, that was Joe Rogan response to Neil Young and Spotify from msn.com. It was published today. Um, yeah, a lot to unpack in that article. Um, the main thing is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm only going to try and, and provide uh, additional commentary. Obviously, I have my own biases like anyone else. I have my own opinion, so don't take what I'm saying as any kind of fact. Oh, by the way, because <laughs> I always forget uh, to mention it, the following views presented in this hour do not reflect the views of KDVS, KDVS sponsors, or the University of California. Uh, so yeah, with that being said, um, yeah, obviously there's a big difference between um, intending to promote misinformation or intending to be controversial and you know, accidentally promoting misinformation. Um, there is a difference, but I feel like in the case of Joe Rogan, um, yeah, it's just saying that it was not your intention to promote misinformation does not excuse having someone who is a prominent member of the, uh, you know, anti-vaccine community uh, talking about how vaccines are bad for you and COVID-19 vaccines especially which you know for many people out there are the only thing 
standing in the way between, you know, serious hospitalization and just having sort of a, you know, a more a more mild experience with the with the illness, you know, going on a podcast that has millions and millions of listeners and giving that kind of information out can seriously be life threatening for a lot of people. And whether it was an intentional or not, I don't think that that completely excuses Joe Rogan or the fact that he, you know, you know, I guess the fact that he said that he is a fan of of Young and Mitchell doesn't really factor in at all. But still, you know, it it I'm not trying to put all of the blame on him, not by any means. We'll have news stories later on in today's show that talk more about it. But um yeah, I think that the there's more to this story than just, you know, whoops, my bad. I'll try to have more uh more experts on with expert opinions to balance things out. Uh, yeah, and uh, as that news story mentioned, um, a big part of this recent wave of, you know, Spotify essentially choosing Joe Rogan over Neil Young and uh, removing Young's music at his request has seen uh, some serious backlash by a lot of uh, Spotify members, many of whom, you know, are feeling like this decision was sort of Spotify choosing to uh, keep its exclusive podcast over, you know, a very famous musician's catalog. Spotify, a service being originally intended for music. So, yeah, I will have to see if this recent wave of consumers uh, reaching out, telling Spotify how they really feel, many of whom canceling their subscriptions, if any of that is going to uh, further change their decision beyond just creating an advisory that I'm sure, even though it might stand out, is still something, you know, fundamentally that can be ignored by much of their customer base. Anyways, uh, moving on from that. So obviously a big part of this conversation has been, you know, what is Spotify's COVID content policy? What is their uh, policy regarding, you know, their responsibility that they have in terms of, you know, sharing uh, information with that's going to help people versus sharing misinformation that could get people sick or worse. And this next article is from Ar- Ashley Carmen uh, off of TheVerge.com titled, Here is the Spotify COVID content policy that lets Joe Rogan slide. Uh, the article starts, Spotify employees are vocally upset inside the company over the streaming platform's deal with Joe Rogan due to his views on COVID vaccines. But their executive leadership has mostly stayed quiet both inside and outside the firm. Today, however, Dusty Jenkins, Spotify's head of global communications and public relations, posted a message on the company Slack addressing employee concerns about Joe Rogan's presence on the platform after Neil Young removed his music in protest. In screenshots viewed by The Verge, Jenkins said she leads public affairs and that the company has reviewed multiple controversial Joe Rogan experience episodes and determined they, they quote, didn't meet the threshold for removal, unquote. She adds that Spotify employs an internal team of some of the best experts in the space and also works with third parties who advise us and help us evolve our policies given what's going on in the world around us. The article uh, continues further on. Jenkins said these rules have been in place for years. The entire healthcare uh, guidelines section is reproduced below. It prohibits content that promotes dangerous, false, or deceptive content about healthcare, 
that may cause offline harm and or pose a direct threat to public health, such as denying the existence of AIDS or COVID-19, encouraging the deliberate contact or contracting of a serious or life-threatening disease or illness, suggesting that consuming bleach can cure various illnesses and diseases, suggesting that wearing a mask will cause the wearer imminent life-threatening physical harm, and lastly, promoting or suggesting that the vaccines are designed to cause death. These guidelines seemingly allow podcasters to say the vaccines cause death, just, that the, just not that they are designed to cause death. Similarly, they allow podcasters to say wearing a mask is ineffective, just not that wearing masks will cause imminent life-threatening harm. The Verge has reached out for comments uh, on Jenkins' statement, the content policy, and when Spotify plans to publicize this policy and hasn't heard back. We apply our policies consistently, consistently and objectively, Jenkins wrote. They are not influenced by the media cycle, calls from one individual, or from external partners. It doesn't mean I personally agree with this content, but I trust our policies and the rationale behind them. Every creator must abide by our policies, she added. And so, yeah, that article was, here's the Spotify COVID content policy that lets Joe Rogan slide from TheVerge.com, written by Ashley Carmen and published January 28th of this year. Um, so, yeah, uh, I feel like, you know, um, the, publici the publicization of this um, content policy, especially regarding COVID by Spotify, uh, you know, it, it does the work of making it seem like they're trying, making it seem like they have a, you know, rigid content policy that, you know, they couldn't possibly allow uh, people, especially people with exclusive deals with the company, to be promoting all kinds of terrible misinformation. But as this article goes on to elaborate, they are allowed to say that vaccines cause death, just that they're not designed to cause death. Uh, they're allowed to say that wearing a mask is ineffective. All of which are statements that, you know, I'm sure, you know, everyone who has read maybe articles about it, scientific papers, or even just had common sense experiences with these kinds of things could tell you quite clearly otherwise. So, um, yeah, I think that Spotify has certainly more culpability here than they have admitted so far. Because, uh, again, you know, it, it would be one thing if... Uh, the Joe Rogan experience was a show that, you know, was just on Spotify, but it being a Spotify exclusive, them spending, you know, I, I'm not even sure, probably millions and millions of dollars, if not more, on having that show be a Spotify exclusive. Um, yeah, it certainly, like, leaves you as a listener with a lot of questions, especially if you're a Spotify member with where is this money that you are paying them each month actually going? Is it going to the artists or is it going to stuff like this? Anyways, uh, moving on. This is, uh, I, I have in my notes, I just really quickly wanted to bring up, you know, I've, I've so far from the news stories we've read, um, obviously a lot of uh, bad stuff has been said about Joe Rogan and um, his role in a lot of different things, not even just in COVID, but with having, you know, members of the radical far right on his show. But um, I remember seeing a tweet and I wish I was able to find it, but essentially what the person was saying was, you know, there was someone who worked in, a, you know, more a more traditional journalist media sphere uh, talking about, you know, essentially it's, it's uh, on one hand frustrating 
having so many people, you know, turn to places like the Joe Rogan experience uh, for their information. But then also we have to ask, why is it necessarily that they are turning to sources like that? You know, why do people trust Joe Rogan more than they trust the mainstream media, essentially? And I don't think that that's a question that the media likes to ask themselves. You know, they are far, you know, happier getting to uh, engage in a culture war and and look down on Joe Rogan and his listeners as as being, you know, misguided or uh, gullible rather than asking, you know, what is it fundamentally that is causing people to turn to these alternative uh, sources of information and news outlets? Um, yeah, essentially not wanting to do any kind of introspection. Uh, moving on, the next article uh, is also, uh, I think, another piece of um, just irony uh, that needs to be thrown into this story. Because, again, uh, the articles that I've read before, they make uh, Joe Rogan and Spotify uh, look, I, I would say it puts them into a, a slightly bad light. But, you know, um, you know, Neil Young making a statement wanting to have his music pulled uh, as a response for uh, Rogan's claims on his show. Um, and then he turns around and does this. This next article is titled, Neil Young pushes Amazon music to fans after pulling content from Spotify amid Joe, amid Joe Rogan controversy. And this is from the uh, Wall Street Journal, was also uh, published today. And it was written by Omar Abdel-Baki and Ann Steele. Uh, so the article goes, in a post on Twitter, Mr. Young provided a link where new subscribers signing up for Amazon.com Incorporated's uh, streaming music service can receive four months free and then pay $7.99 a month afterwards. Uh, this is a quote. Uh, Amazon has been leading the pack in bringing high-res audio to the masses, and it's a great place to enjoy my entire catalog and the highest quality available, Mr. Young said, referring to high-resolution audio. He also thanked streaming services, Apple Music, and Kobo's never even heard of that one i'm gonna be honest that's spelled q-o-b-u-z for quote sticking with my high-res music unquote the four months free link that mr young touted appears to be a better promotion relative to what amazon music typically provides to new subscribers on its website amazon music offers both prime and non-prime members the option for 30 days uh free before charging a monthly fee uh representatives for mr young and Am amazon didn't respond to requests for comment uh, streaming services that carry Mr. Young's music have been promoting it in the days since he pulled his content from Spotify. Hi-Fi streaming service title, which Mr. Young has championed for its sound quality, retweeted a fan's observation. Uh, yeah. Anyways, you get you get the idea. Um, so yeah, essentially, I find it very humorous that you know Neil Young wanting to stick it to the to the corporations uh, and uh, how they are allowing misinformation to be spread. Uh, turns around and uh, signs a deal immediately with Amazon, the largest corporation in the world. Uh, one that I think that any, again, this is my own opinion, but I would say that most people would say, uh, you know, has, has certainly had certain negative impacts on the world at large, most certainly, especially as it regards uh, the current state of labor in the U.S. and abroad. Um yeah, I just it's it's just really funny to me how you, you pull from Spotify for one thing and then you turn around and and sign to uh, to Amazon. But anyways, enough about that. Um, 
I'm really not trying to turn this into a uh, uh, Nick is on his soapbox hour. So I will get into the uh, next story here. This is my uh, last one before we will take a little air break. Um, uh, this one is from musicbusinessworldwide.com. And this is uh, a story that is essentially wrapping up a lot of the details from the past few articles that I've gone over and trying to put it into a larger context, uh, trying to paint a larger picture of what Neil Young's exodus for Spotify might mean for the music industry. So this is Neil Young's Spotify exodus is a test case for artists who dare question music industry dogma. It is from the publication Music Business Worldwide, and this was published by Tim Ingham on January 28th of this year. Uh, so the, the, the article starts out, it talks about um, how Young at one point stated that 60% of his streaming un uh, revenue paid to his label Warner Records is currently derived from just one service, uh, Spotify. Um, the article on its first page reads, Yet he's also just laid the groundwork to shatter erroneous music biz dogma that's lain unquestioned for too many years. Young might even grow his own business as a result. In fact, I suspect that Neil Young is about to prove that a swath of established artists, namely prestige catalog artists, really don't need Spotify to survive anymore. In an open letter published this week, Young called on his fellow stars to, quote, move off the Spotify platform, unquote. If they do, whatever their motivations, it could have repercussions far beyond polemical disputes over COVID-19 and whether or not Spotify cares more about podcasting or music. It could, crack by crack, cause an earthquake at the center of Spotify's business. The last time we saw an artist of Young's profile publicly wrench their catalog from Spotify with a similar level of mainstream media furor, it was Taylor Swift back in November 2014. Swift's protest wasn't political, it was economic. She pulled her catalog in protest at Spotify's free tier, which she suggested was devaluing music's worth in the eyes of fans. It's my opinion that music should not be free, and my prediction is that individual artists and their labels will someday decide what an album's price point is, Swift wrote in an op-ed a couple of months before her Spotify exodus. I hope they don't underestimate themselves or undervalue their art. It took three years for Swift to U-turn on this decision when her catalog re-emerged on Spotify in summer of 2017. This is a quote from Swift. If you wanted to be a relevant artist in 2017, especially if you had your eye on the Billboard charts, you had to be on Spotify. End of quote. She characterized that U-turn as a kind of special celebration for her fans. In truth, it obviously had more to do with Spotify's blossoming dominance of the record business. According to RIAA data, in 2014, when Swift initially pulled her music, U.S. record industry revenue from paid streaming subscriptions made up just 11.5% of the market. By 2017, when Swift re-uploaded her music to Spotify, paid subscriptions had grown to nearly 40% of the U.S. market, more than CD, download, and vinyl sales combined. Spotify was sitting pretty. It had comfortably established itself as a dominant force in the biggest music market on Earth. Uh, moving on, Spotify, with help from the major labels, also managed to slam the lid back on another existential threat at this time, streaming surprisingly brief exclusivity wars. Apple Music, aware that it was losing ground on Spotify, began to pay big money to artists in order to obtain fortnightly windowing exclusives, meaning Spotify couldn't host these records until Apple had run down the clock 
on crucial new release consumer excitement. Artists liked this partly because it echoed the point Taylor Swift made back in 2014, Apple Music had no free tier. So this was intrinsically a smack in the eye for Spotify's insistence that all music should be given away for niche. A who's who of pop royalty at the time, from Drake to Chance the Rapper, Frank Ocean, Katy Perry, the 1975, Coldplay, and Gwen Stefani all held back their new albums from Spotify for at least a week in 2015 or 2016. Some as Apple exclusives, some simply as a paid-for-streaming platform ex exclusive. Not to be outdone, Amazon Music inked its own exclusive release deal with country megastar Garth Brooks. Eventually, the record labels and Spotify rose up in unison against this trend and stopped it in its tracks. Uh, this is from the perspective of the writer of this article, this next paragraph. I genuinely lost count of the number of music biz meetings slash lunches during this period where I dared suggest the future might spell a channel model of artist streaming exclusives a la Netflix or HBO Max, only to be shouted down with variations on the same response. Spotify's freemium model is the future. These artists are making themselves look like Luddites. The most repeated trope of all, every time an artist hurts Spotify in this way, they risk permanently damaging the fragile growth of music's subscription streaming ecosystem and pushing us back into piracy. So really quick, one brief aside from that article, I've noticed that that's a very big reoccurring, uh, yeah, discussion point with a lot of these uh, sort of criticisms of Spotify and other music streaming services, whether it be um, the way that they, you know, cause people to explore and discover music differently, especially with a sort of algorithm-based uh, taste-making approach, or just the fact that they, in many cases, pay their artists that are on their platform very, very little. A lot of times, uh, the rejoinder from the uh, music uh, streaming industry is, well, yes, that may be true, but it was certainly better than the days of Napster and LimeWire and other kinds of, of piracy services that essentially would allow people to, uh, yeah, stream, download music for absolutely free. Um, and while that is, I would say, a fair point, uh, I definitely don't think that that should just be taken out of context uh, and, you know, forget the much larger picture, as we will talk with later. There are music services that, uh, yeah, manage to not engage in piracy while at the same time are able to actually get money to their artists. Uh, which, like I said, we will get to that at a later point in the show. So the, uh, going back to the article, um, it said, It all felt suspiciously like an orchestrated lobbying campaign, probably because it was. Sashin Doshi, uh, who is VP of content at Spotify during its exclusive wars with Apple, confirmed on her latest Music Business Worldwide podcast, quote, Spotify was able to convince the industry that this trend of exclusives was going to destroy the golden goose, unquote. Doshi added, The labels are effectively mediators. Collective bargaining for the artist community, they're the ones who are going to see that risk more than anyone. Spotify in particular probably worked with them to see that endgame and say, you need to back off on this. This is just, just going to hurt everybody. It was an argument noisily amplified by the likes of music biz commentator Bob Lafetz, who memorably said in 2016, that any artist who decided to pick a fight with Spotify was so blank dumb. Uh, you have to face the truth, Lafette said uh, to Re Recode Media podcast. The game has changed. 
The thing is, now the game has changed again. Dramatically so. We are in another new chapter of music's commercial evolution, and Spotify is heavily under the cosh. That fragile growth worry for music streaming subscriptions is long in the rearview mirror. Paying for music on a monthly basis today is as hardwired into our collective brains as refreshing Instagram or ordering Uber Eats. Comfortably more than 500, 500 million people worldwide now pay for a music streaming service, Goldman Sachs reckons will easily be at over a billion by 2030. Yet in quarter two of 2021, just 31% of these 500 million plus global music subscribers were paying for Spotify, according to Media Research, down from 33% in the prior year quarter. If that market share keeps falling at a similar rate, three quarters of worldwide streaming music subscribers will be using a platform that isn't Spotify by summer of 2024. Quote, Spotify isn't the world's fastest growing Western music streaming service anymore. YouTube Music is. Uh, according to Media, YouTube Music saw subscription growth of over 50% in the 12 months leading up to quarter two of 2021. And while Spotify is maintaining its importance to the major record companies, recent filings show that it still contributed just 18% of Warner Music Group's total revenues in uh, fall of 2021. That's a long way from 60% none of which touches on the new fiscal opportunities for artists flourishing entirely outside of audio music streaming in 2022, opportunities that simply didn't exist back when Taylor Swift quietly shuffled back onto Spotify five years ago. And because no music business column these days is complete without buzzword bingo, here's a few more exciting things for artists that had bubbled up in the pandemic era. Uh, live streaming, Bandcamp, Home Fitness, The Metaverse, XR, etc etc i think that last one was maybe trying to say vr i have no idea what xr is i hope it's appropriate to say on air uh moving on this long-running flawed music business dogma that to turn your back on spotify is to turn your back on progress and likely your own career is now provably defunct this next part talks about that website i was talking about earlier the neil young archive in october 2019 the neil young Archive, the online destination where Young presents his full music catalog and other digital trinkets for a $1.99 per month subscription, had 25,000 uh, subscribers. That's an annual take of over 600,000, roughly equivalent to 150 million Spotify plays every 12 months. While the PR momentum has his latest Spotify walkout has given him, these numbers could easily be lugged upwards, striking a meaningful blow for the direct-to-consumer monthly fan subscription model versus the 60,000 uh, 60, additional tracks a day morass of Spotify's song Soup. Plenty of big-name music musicians today have major problems, publicly espoused or otherwise, with Spotify, whether those problems are political, ethical, or economic. Spotify, remember, is currently appealing against a landmark pay rise for songwriters in the U.S., a pay rise that's already been approved by the Copyright Royalty Board. Additionally, Spotify has also proposed measly terms for U.S. songwriter pay for the next five years, terms that the National Mu Music Publishers Association characterizes as, quote, the lowest royalty rates in history, unquote. I'm, uh, I'm starting to wonder if Neil Young's Rogan Spotify protests just made him a prime candidate to start the second wave of exclusive music streaming deals with FANG. That's a uh, industry acronym representing the top five tech companies, in this case, Facebook, now known as Meta, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, which is also now known by its uh, 
full name as Alphabet Inc. Uh, so yeah, like you were saying, the second wave of, exclu of exclusive music streaming deals with Fang, this time for evergreen catalog artists. In the same way that Seinfeld and Friends have attracted huge money, uh, huge money exclusive deals in the world of on-demand TV. One intriguing new factor that may bear influence on this prospect, the music industry's heavyweight investors are no longer confined to the three major music companies. Hypnosis Songs Fund paid somewhere to close to $150 million to buy 50% of Young's publishing in 2021. Would its shareholders really turn away a bulky check from an Amazon, Google, or Apple to lock down Young's catalog for a few years? Uh, at the root of this story is the fact that Neil Young is keen for each of us to get fully COVID vaccinated. That way, he reasons we can all, to paraphrase gentle government messaging the world over, learn to live with it. But when it comes to Spotify, Neil Young may be about to show every established out there, if they so wish, just how to live without it. So yeah, that article again uh, was Neil Young's Spotify Exodus is a test case for artists who dare question music industry dogma by Tim, Tim Ingham off the publication musicbusinessworldwide.com, published January 8th of this year. Felt like that was super informative. Um, certainly uh, puts a lot of context to the larger moves Spotify has been making in recent years. Uh, you know, and yeah, I think that there is a good chance, similar to what it was saying, that, you know, I, I it could be the case that with Spotify's treatment of artists, especially the uh, low pay that they give out for each stream, that, um, yeah, more artists will be making this move in the future and taking their catalog off of that service. So let's see. Uh, I have about 20, 25 minutes left in today's show. Uh, again, you are listening to the Civic Animal News Hour, uh, and my name is Nick Donato. I'm your host. I'm going to take a little bit of an air break now, but when we come back, we're going to be talking more about the impact of streaming services on music, as well as what are the alternatives that we can look for if we really want to support the industry and support, uh, yeah, small-time independent uh, artists. Um, so with that being said, this uh, album that you've been listening to in the background, this background music is You Must Believe in Spring by the wonderful Bill, El Bill Evans. And this next song that I'm about to jump into is uh, Belize Pula. Uh, or actually, sorry, one sec. Um, there we go. That's the one. That's the one I'm looking for. Sorry, for some reason. Uh, ironically enough, Spotify uh, goofed up on me. Anyways, <laughs> my apologies. This is Belize Pula by Masayoshi Takanaka off of his album Brazilian Skies. So I will play that and be back in a sec. Thank you so much. This is the Civic Animal News Hour right here on KDVS Davis 90.3 FM. And yeah, we'll be back in a bit.
Are you interested in sponsoring this or any other hour of KDBS programming? If you or your business would like to know more about sponsoring KDBS programming, you can contact kdbsunderwriting at gmail.com. Use at home, nowhere to go. I just feel like diet. Doing too many drugs, nowhere to go. Doing too many drugs. When you're tired of holding the pain inside, and feeling like dying, any time of the day or night, call the California Youth Crisis Line. Without charge, call. They won't judge you there. Call 1 800 843 5200. Doctors Without Borders delivers medical emergency aid to victims of war, armed conflict, natural and man-made disasters, and to others who lack health due to the social or geographical isolation. Doctors Without Borders is a private nonprofit organization which needs your help to bring primary health care to remote, isolated areas where resources and training are limited. For more information about Doctors Without Borders or to volunteer overseas, Visit the website at www.doctorswithoutborders.org. A national survey by Sears, the WNBA, and the National Alliance of Breast Cancer Organizations found that 62% of women underestimate their chances of getting breast cancer, and 31% do not believe they will develop the disease. Women are also not talking to each other about important breast health activities like mammograms, and doctors tend to talk to women age 55 and over less about breast health than they do younger women. Because early detection is so important in saving lives, the more women support each other and the more physicians emphasize breast health activities to all women, the better the outcomes will be. The Sears WNBA Breast Health Awareness Program will exceed the $1 million mark in cumulative donations to the National Alliance of Breast Cancer Organization. Welcome back. I'm your host, Nick Donato, and this is the Civic Animal News Hour right here on KDBS Davis 90.3 FM. That last song, that little air break, was Beliza Pula. That's spelled B-E-L-E-Z-A space uh, P-U-L-A. And that was off the album Brazilian Skies by Masayoshi Takanaka, which came out in 1978. Um, yeah, really fascinating uh, take on uh, Brazilian music by a Japanese musician. Super upbeat, super fun to listen to. Found that album on YouTube, funny enough, uh, connecting that to uh, today's topic of streaming services. Um, yeah, I got recommended to it uh, and uh, immediately threw it on. It was like, this is, this is the perfect kind of music uh, for the mood I'm in right now. Uh, yeah, anyways, uh, moving on. Uh, so the past half hour to 45 minutes, I've been talking a lot about the current scandal embroiling Spotify concerning, uh, their, uh, choosing Joe Rogan and his show over that of the music catalog of Neil Young. 
And with a lot of people, you know, talking about uh, Spotify, whether it be because they are seen uh, by some as promoting uh, misinformation about COVID-19 and other important topics, or their lackluster support of artists, you know, oftentimes paying uh, many, many musicians literal fractions of a penny for each stream that they get on the Spotify platform. There's one other area of concern, I think for many of us, I know myself, but probably for uh, many of you out there who listen to KDBS regularly. And uh, that's over Spotify's use of algorithms. So this next article is from the Financial Times titled, How Spotify's Algorithms Are Ruining Music. This is by Michael Hahn, published May 2nd, 2019. Uh, So, uh, yeah, a a few paragraphs down, the article reads, in April, the IFPI, the global body of the recording industry, released its latest annual global music report. For the fourth consecutive year, revenues were up to a total of $19.1 billion, from a low of $14.3 billion in 2014. Nearly half those revenues came from music streaming, driven by a 33% rise in paid subscriptions to services such as Spotify, Apple Music, and Tidal. Cause for champagne corks to pop? Not quite. It is worth remembering that 20 years ago, the IFPI reported global music revenues of $38.6 billion. Today's booming recording industry is less than half the size it was at the turn of the century. The nadir for the recording industry recorded with the first shoots of its regrowth. In August 2007, the British record company EMI, the fourth of the majors, alongside Universal, Sony, and Warner, was bought by private equity firm Terra Firma for four billion uh, British pounds. A year later, a Swedish company called Spotify took its music streaming service public. The former was, perhaps, the last gasp of the old way of doing things. Less than four years after buying EMI, Terra Firma was unable to meet its debts and ceded control of the company to its main lender, Citigroup. Before 2011 was out, the process of breaking up the company had begun. Eamon Ford's account of the EMI disaster is surprisingly sympathetic to Terra Firma and to Guy Hans, the fund's founder and chairman. EMI's demise was foreshadowed before Hans arrived with a blaze of hubris in the early 2000s. Ford, a longtime observer and chronicler of the music business, recounts the, quote, disastrous and expensive, unquote, signings of that era. The most infamous was Mariah Carey, signed in April 2001 for a rumored 70 million British pounds. Less than a year later, EMI paid her 28 million pounds to terminate her five-year contract. As illegal downloads scythed through record company profits, it was apparent that the old days of largesse had the end. Notwithstanding the launch of iTunes in 2001, which at least offered one revenue stream from the internet, and that some, someone who, who could reimagine a business model might transform the industry, Hans thought he was that person. A former trader, Hans had made his uh, reputation in the art of securitization, selling bonds backed by future cash flow in asset-rich, cost-heavy sectors, such as pubs and rolling stock operators. A music business with a weighty back catalog that included the Beatles and Pink Floyd, and a lucrative royalty-generating publishing division appeared to brim with opportunity. A decade later, much of what Hans was trying to bring about is now, is now music business orthodoxy. He preached the need to use data when signing artists, not just the golden ears of talent scouts. Data are now a key part of the talent spotting process. 
He also wanted to launch a music streaming service on which EMI could promote its music to the public. If the public wouldn't pay, EMI would give them music for free and find other ways to make money from the artists from advertising and branding. Ford quotes one EMI executive as saying the company's staff were not resistant to change. The issue was that Terraforma was looking to impose change from the outside without being, quote, music people. They came in, they didn't understand, and they tried to change things without understanding. When you do that, you're going to get resistance. Yet change did come, not just to EMI, but to the entire industry. It was imposed from the outside by some Swedes. Spotify's founders were also not, quote, music people, but they understood the promise of the moment and that if someone could offer an alternative to music piracy, they would win both political and industry support. And it completely transformed music in ways no one could have predicted. Take this fact. To qualify as having been, been listened to on Spotify, a song has to have been played for 30 seconds. Fair enough, right? Except that means hit songs have become increasingly predictable, offering up all their pleasures in the opening half minute. Their makers dare not risk scaring off listeners. I was told earlier this year of one major band whose forthcoming album is largely lots of short songs. They get paid after 30 seconds, and the more tracks they are, the more opportunities for payment there are. Or consider that for all of the money that the streaming services have generated for the music industry, very little of it flows back to any musicians except the select few who dominate the streaming statistics, consolidating their popularity in a way that was impossible when radio was still the greatest disseminator of music. As Damon Krukowski, formerly of the beloved 1980s alt-rock band Galaxy 500, puts it in Ways of Hearing, quote, most musicians I know are paid much too little or much too much, end quote. Plenty of money goes back to the labels, though, because the three remaining majors are among the owners of Spotify. They demanded equity in return for licensing their music to the streaming service. Hence the IFPI's cheeriness about the state of the industry. Moving on, the article talks about uh, one particular book titled Spotify Teardown. Uh, description is Maria Ericsson and a team of Swedish academics explore behavioral shifts in consumption. Spotify Teardown isn't the fearsome expose promised by the fact that the company tried to suppress the research on which it is based. Its title is misleading to tech ignoramuses though. A teardown isn't a demolition, but a reverse of building up, to try to make sense of how a platform works by taking it apart from the top. What becomes clear though is that the rise of Spotify has been aided by a very old-fashioned ability to create hype. And that hype has helped Spotify deflect attention from the fact that its main business is not helping listeners discover new music something it's not very good at, but collecting information about listeners in order to sell its audience to its advertisers. The authors, all Swedish academics, point to the ways Spotify has changed its design over the years, away from tracks and artists and search options. Instead, music consumption has been reorganized around, quote, behaviors, feelings, and moods, unquote, channeled through curated playlists and motivational messages all of which the authors argue is of great use, not just to those buying advertising on Spotify, but to the major labels who license their music to it. The data Spotify collects enables the industry to work out who its market is, where it lives, what else they like, how often they listen to music, almost anything really. It's the greatest assemblage of information about music listeners in history, and has profoundly altered the industry. It has made Spotify music's kingmaker. These days when an artist travels abroad to promote a new album, the meeting with the local Spotify office is more important than the TV appearance or the newspaper interviews. As Justin Young of The Vaccines told me last year, 
Spotify enables him to plan his band's set list so that they can play the most popular song in any given city. I thought that last fact was kind of mind-blowing. Literally changing your set list for each city that you're in based off of, yeah, which, which tracks are the most popular in a given city. It kind of blew my mind. Anyways, the article goes on. One thing anyone who interviews older musicians often hears is a romantic reverie about how when you had to buy your own music as a kid, you listened to it until you liked it because you wouldn't be able to afford a new album for another month. Now you simply skip to the next one and probably don't give it your full attention. Without ownership, there's no incentive to study or consider the sheer expanse of Spotify. Quote, digital music is like grains of sand or something at the beach, like it just goes as far as you can see, unquote, says music distributor uh, Jimmy Johnson in Ways of Hearing. And there's no reason to think that any of those grains of sand is any better than any of the others. You would never build a shelf to store your grains of sand. Faced with the impossible, possibly wide choice of Spotify, it becomes easier to just return to old favorites. Easier than when th flicking through your vinyl or CDs because the act of looking through your own music makes things you had not thought of in years leap out at you. Spotify actually makes people into more conservative listeners, a process aided by its algorithms, which steer you to mu uh, towards music similar to your most frequent listening. Uh, the volume of music on Spotify and the other streaming services means they are not and can never be music companies. No one at those companies, no one, is listening to everything, Krakowski writes. It's impossible. It's not a human task on a human scale. The theme of Krakowski's slim and compelling book is that the changes in the way the music industry works has been about controlling and eliminating excess noise. That's in a literal sense. Digital technology eliminates the crackles and pops of analog vinyl, and in a more metaphorical one too. Streaming has stripped music of context, paired it back to being just about the song and the moment. But part of what made pop great was the excess noise, literal and metaphorical, that enhanced the signal. The thing we were meant to be listening to, the real difference, he writes, is between a world enriched by noise and a world that strives towards signal only. So yeah, that article was How Spotify's Algorithms Are Ruining Music by Michael Hahn, uh, published May 2nd, 2019 in the Financial Times. Another very illuminating article. Uh... Sorry to rush, I'm just running a little low on time here, and I had one more story I wanted to get into. Uh, you know, a lot of talk over the past hour about all of the different ways Spotify can be seen as hurting artists and hurting the music industry. So I wanted to end today's show on a good note by talking about a alternative music service um, that is seemingly much better for artists and much better for the industry and... I would especially argue far, far better for listeners. And this article is titled, Can Bandcamp Save the Music Business? From the New Statesman, published uh, July 22nd of last year by Ellen Pearson Hager. Uh, the article starts, William Doyle first uploaded music to Bandcamp in November 2016. He had previously released two electronic albums on the major indie label XL under the name East India Youth, but decided to call time on the project. Doyle uploaded an instrumental album, The Dream Derealized, under his own name and chose to donate all the money he earned from it to the mental health charity Mind. It was a nice, positive first use of Bandcamp, Doyle told me. 
There'd always been a rigmarole to putting things out before, so it felt good to be instantly like, I've made this music, I'm going to upload it, and then it's available to everyone. Bandcamp reminded Doyle of MySpace, the social networking service that, in the mid-knots, uh, was instrumental in launching the careers of many musicians, providing an easy way for them to connect to listeners. It makes you feel like you're actually communicating people and not just chasing abstract metrics, said Doyle, who has continued to use Bandcamp to share his alternative art pop listing albums and EPs available for download. Bandcamp, which was founded in 2008 and has its headquarters in Oakland, California, is an online marketplace for artists and labels. We've built our business around a model that puts the artist first, its mission statement reads. Bandcamp takes 10 to 15% per sale and payment processor fees are typically between 1 and 5% of each purchase, leaving the artist or label with an average of 82% per sale. An artist who has a track listed at $1, or approximately uh, 72 British pounds, will receive about £59 for each sale. At a time when one Spotify stream has an average value of around £0.004, uh, it's easy to see why Bandcamp has come to be known as the savior of indie music. Could it help make the whole industry more equitable? Humans are what make Bandcamp tick, said London-based Ben Jacobs, who releases avant-garde electronica as Max Tundra. On streaming platforms such as Spotify, it's, quote, just left to algorithms. An editorial arm of Bandcamp highlights new releases and acts as a well-thought-out discovery tool complete with distinctive illustrations. It is also renowned for its openness. There are extensive explanations regarding how artists are paid on its website. Jacobs described the platform as, quote, very transparent under the hood. You'll get a monthly email from Bandcamp saying how much you made, and every time there's a sale, it says, this is your cut, whereas the streaming platforms is much more opaque. Over the last year, Bandcamp has donated huge amounts to worthy causes, following recent campaigns to support the American Civil Liberties Union and the Transgender Law Center. On Juneteenth, 2020, Bandcamp gave its shares, a share of sales, to the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Meanwhile, Spotify's equivalent gesture was quite literally empty, it added 8 minutes, 46 seconds of silence, the length of time that police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on George Floyd's neck to some of its playlists. Bandcamp's initiative encouraged labels with a presence on the platform to follow suit. Many pledged to donate their share of profits to uh, radical justice organizations. The initiative took place again on Juneteenth, 2021. When the COVID-19 pandemic hit, Bandcamp announced it would waive its usual revenue share for one day to support artists who had been badly affected by the sudden shutdown of live music events. On March 20th, 2020, Bandcamp users spent $4.3 million on the site, 15 times the amount expected on a typical Friday. The results from the first Bandcamp Friday were inspiring, with fans going above and beyond to support the artists they love, said Bandcamp COO Josh Kim. We saw artists share all over social media that fans were helping them cover rent, mortgages, groceries, medications, and so much more. The site realized it was onto a good thing. Artists had prepared special releases to mark the date, whipping up a huge amount of excitement in indie music communities. And so carried on. On the first Friday of every month since, Bandcamp has waived its share of artist earnings. Kim said that over the course of 13 Bandcamp Fridays, fans have paid artists more than $56 million. The site has pledged to continue this initiative throughout 2021 as live music continues to be severely disrupted by the pandemic. But can Bandcamp Friday last forever? It felt special at the start, said Doyle, who spent March 20th, 2020, sharing recommendations of what to buy uh, from, in, from Bandcamp on Instagram. 
Quote, but it now feels like there's too much stuff. Doyle made almost uh, enough money from one single day of sales to cover his rent for a month. But, he said, now people are almost dreading how much stuff gets put up on Bandcamp in preparation for Bandcamp Friday. I guess it shows you how dire the whole ecosystem is in terms of making money out of being in the music industry right now. That any opportunity is pounced on with such extreme vigor. Jacobs has too, uh, too enjoyed the first Bandcamp Friday, uploading new music to mark the event. But since then, he has been reluctant to upload new songs, quote, for the sake of it. He likens the monthly fee-free day to Record Store Day, an annual event that was once an effective way to support independent shops and is now so oversaturated with major label releases that it feels for the most part unhelpful. I think it's a really generous initiative on Bandcap's part, and it's worked out well for them, Jacob said, but there's a danger of your stuff getting lost in the melee. The royalty cut is so generous on Bandcamp compared to anywhere else, it sort of doesn't matter where when you put your record out. Uh, yeah, moving on uh, to a later part in the article. Uh, Bandcamp's regular payment infrastructure encourages generosity among music fans. Artists and labels uh, set a minimum price per item, but fans can pay more if they choose. In a space where everything else is like, can you get it for the cheapest possible? That's where I see the most value, said Chloe Von Bergen, the VP of Operations at Secretly Group, which is home to the independent labels Dead Oceans, Jag Jaguar, and Secretly Canadian, and artists including Dinosaur Jr. and Phoebe Bridgers. Secretly Group's roster, independent alternative artists with a dedicated fan base, is, quote, very Bandcamp friendly, Van Bergen said, but the site accounts for a small proportion of the group's overall sales, just 1.8% of its digital income and approximately 4% of its physical profit so far this year. We believe in Bandcamp as an additional source for incoming uh, a source of income for labels and artists, but it'd be a stretch to advocate for their model as a viable alternative to any of the existing revenue streams, which currently hold up the majority of the industry. Uh, there's another uh, important and troubling difference. Listeners can stream music for free on the site, and because Bandcamp is not a subscription service and does not run adverts, artists do not see any money unless a fan chooses to purchase a copy of a record after listening. This, Van Bergen said, is a, quote, distinct flaw for a site that positions itself as pro-artist and anti-streaming. The idea is that Bandcamp wants to present itself as on a level playing field with other streaming companies that could become a point of contention for artists choosing where to put their music. Spotify may be criticized for handing such a pitiful share of a stream to artists, but it does at least always pay. Tom McDonald, head of digital operations at NinjaTune, an independent label that specializes in experimental electronic and dance music, doesn't see this as a problem. I can't imagine many listeners are using Bandcamp as a pure streaming service, he said. Besides, the artist has the opportunity to limit the amount of streams of any track the fans can engage with, and the potential upsell plays a part. Uh, not everyone that streams a track will buy, of course, but it's not generally a platform anyone who doesn't buy music will be using as their primary streaming serve. Uh, sorry, as their primary streaming device. Kim described Bandcamp as quote complementary to streaming platforms. The model of paying artists per stream based on a share of subscription fees or money collected from advertisers has already been shown to not work for the vast majority of artists. He said. So we'll continue to operate in the way we do, making it easy for fans to listen to and discover artists and then directly support them through sales of digital and physical music. We're confident that this is the best way to generate real revenue for the broadest possible range of artists. Bandcamp is committed to downloads and physical products, a setup that encourages music fans to consider the worth of what they choose to listen to. 
when we have artists with large customer bases on Bandcamp, we see fans return time and time again for new releases. Bandcamp Friday, the works. Bandcamp is like any beloved indie record shop in, in that way, just with a larger footprint. Uh, Doyle pointed out uh, that for artists on a standard record deal, it doesn't matter whether their album is bought via Bandcamp, a record shop, or on Amazon. Either way, they won't see any of the earnings from it until they have recouped their advance. Many fans won't realize this, but it doesn't matter. The important thing is that, quote, the consumer feels like they are contributing to you directly, he said, because that is what strengthens loyalties between fans and artists. That's the sort of thing streaming culture misses out on because you're so geared towards the next play, Doyle said. Bandcamp, meanwhile, offers a sense of community. Bandcamp has strengthened the idea uh, of the fan as not just a music consumer, but also as an invested patron in an artist's career progression, said Van Bergen. And in this day and age, any initiative that encourages kindness and giving should be worthy of recogn recognition. So again, that article was Can Bandcamp Save the Music Business from the New Statesman, written by Ellen Pearson Hager and published July 22nd, 2021. Uh, I've gone considerably over time, so I'm going to wrap up now. Uh, my last news story that I was originally going to talk about um, was concerning uh, a recent UK uh, watchdog that is launching a music streaming investigation, uh, investing company, investigating companies like Spotify and Apple Music. They have too much of a stranglehold on the market and are stifling innovation in the music industry, um, but unfortunately could not get to that. With that being said, I hope my little uh, tour of Spotify, its ups and downs, the recent uh, ongoing feud with Neil Young, Spotify, and Joe Rogan. Um, once again, my name is Nick Donato. This has been the Civic Animal News Hour. Uh, tune in next week, Mondays, 5 to 6 p.m. And uh, yeah, I will uh, end today's show with a quick little track. This song is Lollipop. Uh, in parentheses, Ode to Jim by one of my favorite bands, Always, off of their album, Anti-Socialites. So yeah, one last time, this has been the Civic Animal News Hour. I've been your host, Nick Donato, and you are listening to KWS Davis, 90.3 FM. Hope you enjoy the rest of your Monday.